You're listening to Garden Futurist. I'm Sarah Beck. We have a great topic today, so close to U.S. Thanksgiving. For instance, I'm so thankful to have my co-producer, Adrian St. Clair, with me. I'm really grateful to be here. There's actually a really strong food component in today's episode, and it's really much more than that. I feel like, as always, we see threads of ideas running through a lot of our conversations. Yeah, it's been interesting to see how these topics have this consistent thread throughout them. We talked to Martin Breed about how our microbiome connects to plants and health. And he was talking about the aerobiome, right? The microbes in the air. That was amazing. And that also connected to the immune system. And we also talked to Judy Bluehurst Skelton about the indigenous communities and their history and present day tending of the land. And this conversation brings those two things together to discuss how landscape stewardship is so dependent on the stewardship of soil and how that's deeply connected with human nutrition and health. Our guests are David Montgomery and Anne Biclay. David Montgomery is a professor at the University of Washington, a MacArthur Fellow, and an authority on geomorphology. And Anne Biclay is a biologist and environmental planner. They happen to be married to each other, and they're known for previous books such as The Hidden Half of Nature and for this new book, What Your Food Ate. Adrian, before I forget, there's actually a word that Anne and David seem to use a lot. It's the word exudate. In the context of soil, what are they talking about? Yeah, in reference to plants, exudates are chemicals that are released from their roots and they help break up the nutrients that are found there. I wanted to make a few comments, and I really hope that I don't embarrass myself because I really feel like I have to gush about your book, How to Heal Our Land and Reclaim Our Health. This was a really ambitious book. Just looking at the scope, I was just so impressed by your science communication. I was just absolutely blown away by your treatment of a lot of what I think are very difficult subjects to explain. And as a plant nerd, I have taken soil science several times, and I think it's been really intimidating for me. I'm just so impressed by how you handled this subject and the fact that as excited as I get about plants, I got as excited about thinking about soil. You touch on plant health, you touch on animal health and human health. I mean, it's all connected. I'm just wondering, as you were developing the outline and the story of how this book was going to be put together, did you realize you were going to be covering so, so much ground? Sorry for the pun. Kind of, but not totally. (laughs) We knew at the start of writing What Your Food Ate that we were going to be looking at the connections between soil health and human health, because that's what we really wanted to wrestle with in this book as sort of the follow-up to the previous books. We ended up going down, you know, sort of paths that we hadn't anticipated, learning things we hadn't thought we would learn. We ended up with sort of a macro outline where we were looking at, you know, how farming practices affect soil health and how soil health affects the health of crops and how the health of crops influences the health of livestock and how the health of the soil crops and livestock roll up to influence human health. So we divided the book into sort of sections on each to make it in a way, sort of bite-sized pieces of science and history and storytelling 
but that has a thread that links it all together to go from the soil health to human health. I really would like to start with the plant side of things because I was very enamored with this particular analogy that you shared. And I kept thinking back to it because you described how humans get help digesting their food from the gut biome. And this has been a really popular subject for a while. At least, you know, I've followed this a lot because I think it's super interesting. And you describe how plants do their digestion being outside of their bodies in the soil. I was hoping you could explain this a little bit further because I thought that was just a really good analogy for me to grasp onto. We all know, at least the broad outline, some of us in way more detail, how our digestive system works. The food comes in and you've got this milieu of enzymes and microbes and all of that. And then we're alive and we're thriving with their help. When you really think about the soil and plants, of course, they don't have teeth and digestive enzymes and all of that stuff. So they've got to get some help. It's always interesting to like sort of look back into the early evolution of any organism. And so the first land plants right? They weren't these big flowery, floppy leaved things. They were these puny little aquatic things, little stick-like things crawling out of the water, not physically, but you know what I mean. And they land on land. It's like, wow, you need some help here. And so that was when soil microbial communities were sitting there and Plants have long produced exudates, and so the microbes are onto the exudates, and then the plants are onto what the microbes can provide. And so there's organic matter in the soil that without the microbes, plants are not going to be able to utilize any of that. So if you think about the soil and where the stomach is and all of that, it's not some far-flung reaches away from the root system of a plant. The roots are kind of this, I don't know, hybrid kind of stomach and absorptive thing, because from the standpoint of the stomach, they're recruiting all of these microbes really close to the roots. Without the microbes doing a lot of these things, the plants are not going to be, you know, having a very good digestive experience, let's just say. I love also that you had this analogy about pollinator plant relationships and how these mutually beneficial relationships are so complex and they're really similar. Do you feel like this is a field that is really just at a cutting edge now? It sounds like there's so much more to know. Yeah, we've barely scratched the surface, really. What's interesting about thinking about the symbiotic relationships between plants and their partners in the soil the bacteria and fungi, is that it's a different lens than many of us are accustomed to thinking about nature through, where a lot of us are immersed in thinking about competition as the way that nature works. And that is a very important evolutionary force between individuals and species, but it's not the only force. The impact of symbiosis on things that we can see in a garden like pollinators and flowers, that we can get because we can see it with our senses. People have studied it. We've seen the interactions. There's other examples of mutually beneficial relationships in biology, even if we've emphasized competition for 150 years in the way we frame things. But in the world, the out of sight world below our feet, what Anne and I have called the hidden half of nature that is underground where we can't see it readily and microscopic, the microbial world where we don't even know it's there without scientific instruments. It makes it that much harder to understand relationships between species. 
And so we're kind of at this point, I think, in understanding soil ecology and soil life that the above ground world of biology was like in the early to mid 19th century, just sort of understanding who are the players without totally understanding what game they're playing or how they impact each other. You pick up a random sample of soil and you deliver it to a soil biology lab and they'll be able to identify maybe half the species of microbes in it, maybe half. What's that other half doing? We don't really know, but there's been enough documented examples of uh, mutually beneficial symbiotic relationships or commensal ones that are just sort of neutral, where they're not really affecting each other, but that microbes in the soil could be taking up space that might otherwise be occupied by pathogens. So that, you know, when we change the communities of life in the soil, which we do through our gardening or agricultural practices at a home or a farm, we're scrambling some of those relationships. And that is, we think, had an impact on other things that we might care about, like what gets into our food in the context of agriculture. There's lessons, I think, in thinking about caring for creating like a pollinator garden to care for those organisms that we know have mutually beneficial relationships with the things we might be more interested in, like the plants, for example, since I'm married to someone with a lot of plant lust. But, you know, and so if we start thinking about soil in a similar way of how do we care for, how do we cultivate the beneficial life in the soil, it gives us a completely different lens on understanding what it is we ought to be doing to the soil to support our objectives, whether it's to grow more food or to grow a beautiful garden or to support an orchard, whatever. So in terms of this newfound knowledge, it seems also somewhat tragic that we're just now realizing we're losing some mineral content in our available food supply, especially compared to even a couple generations ago. Yeah, it's a huge concern. It's too bad we don't have a much closer connection between our nutrition world and our agricultural world, because you look in agronomy journals and it's all about yield, 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 and the effects of this input or that input. And nutritionists, of course, are not that concerned about, I mean, I'm sure there are many out there who are concerned about the way that our food is grown, but it's hard to see that reflected in nutrition science and so forth. And the reason it's such a problem is that when you look at micronutrients, so these micronutrients are, it's either a vitamin or it's a mineral element. And we're familiar with many of them, like iron and zinc are really common. Zinc is involved in something like over 200 enzymatic reactions that support all these different things going on in our body. I think this has been the story of agriculture and, you know, obviously the last century, this drive to get more out of an individual plant and pushing the plant yields. But it is an interesting question, and maybe this is oversimplification, but can you talk just briefly about how this idea of not trying to get such a high yield, is it really as simple as that as saying, if I'm going to grow a plant that isn't necessarily bred for the highest possible yield, it may be gleaning more of those nutrients and minerals from that particular patch of soil. Yeah, there's sort of a couple elements to that. The one very well-documented reason for the declining mineral abundance in many crops is what's called the dilution effect. And that is where if you think about, say you take a knife full of peanut butter out of the fridge and you're gonna either spread it on a little cracker and pile it up really high, or you're gonna spread it on a large piece of bread and just like dust the thing thinly and then take a bite out of either one of those. Which one are you getting more peanut butter in? You know, it's just off the little cracker. 
So you could think of that as an analogy for nutrient density. So if you have a plant, a wheat plant, for example, and it takes up a certain amount of iron from the soil, but you've bred the plant to produce twice as many seeds as its neighboring plant, if they both take the same amount of iron from the soil and the one distributes it to twice as many seeds, that plant's going to have half the nutrient density in terms of iron. And that phenomenon is pretty well established in agronomic circles as an influence as to why some mineral micronutrients have declined in certain crops that were bred for performance for high yield. Now, is that a necessary trade-off? You know, do we have to trade off quality for quantity? And the short answer is we don't think so. What we've done is we've bred crops for high yields in high nitrogen environments, you know, with a lot of nitrogen fertilizer. And we didn't simultaneously select for genes that would increase, say, the zinc or the iron uptake. So we selected for one thing, yield, and we neglected the other. It's not so much that it's an inherent trade-off, because it turns out that there's different genes, different pathways that can affect mineral uptake in plants. And we just didn't select for the ones that would enhance that at the same time that we were selecting for high yields. So there's sort of an inadvertent overlooking of that. But there's also a connection with agricultural practices in terms of how we treat the land and mineral uptake by plants in the, the mycorrhizal fungi. What happens if you are tilling a soil regularly? Well, you're cutting up their fungal hyphae, their root-like structures that were the pathways that they use to deliver minerals they prospect from the soil to their plant partners. And so if you disrupt that, you're sort of breaking the transportation system that was helping to supply micronutrients. And the third piece of this is that plants have two different gene pathways. Many crops have two gene pathways for taking up micronutrients from the soil. And when a plant is grown in a nitrogen-rich environment, it tends to turn off the pathways that would recruit microbial partners. It turns down the exudate faucet. Why? It's a nitrogen. They're getting all this go juice for growth. And so they put their energy into growth and they're not investing as much in their root system and their microbial partners. And so they get a lower return of micronutrients. You're listening to Garden Futurist. We'll be back in a moment. While we're on the topic of being thankful, I just want to say we have been so fortunate to have the sponsoring support this year of Bartlett Tree Experts. It's really not often that a company exemplifies true commitment to scientific research, education, and stewardship the way they do. They really walk the walk. A great example of this was the Legacy Tree Program giveaway of Takati Cypress at our event at San Diego Botanic Garden. 150 saplings were given away, giving community members a chance to support a rare plant of conservation importance. It's the larval host plant for the thorns hairstreak butterfly, which is threatened by the increased incidence of wildland fires. Pacific Horticulture and Garden Futurist are proud to put the Bartlett name beside our own. Be sure to check out their many educational resources and think of them for your tree care needs. Call 877-BARTLETT or visit Bartlett, B-A-R-T-L-E-T-T dot com. To jump into some of the areas of solutions, and I'm so excited to hear you talk about the potential for breeding some of these positive functions back in, but you also talk about other, I think, more practical, just hands-on regenerative farming methods. 
I think in the book you describe it as uh, plow is kind of like a bomb going off in the soil as far as affecting the health of, of the microbes and everything that's living there. Can you talk just a little bit about what the no-till option might be. I remember years ago, there was sort of a no-till movement that was using a lot of herbicides and, and that sort of thing. You obviously have some examples that are not that. Yeah. When you look at the recipe for cultivating beneficial life in the soil, it boils down to a couple key things. Don't disturb them, feed them, and give them partners to play with which translates into sort of no-till or minimizing disturbance, planting cover crops so that there's organic matter that's being returned to the soil. You're not exporting all the organic matter offsite to sell somewhere. And that you're growing a diversity of crops. Why? Because that produces a diversity of exudates, which recruits a diversity of microbes, which gives a wide repertoire to soil life to be able to adapt and to interact with whatever plants are growing there. Now, with the no-till thing, interest in no-till really started as a way to minimize soil erosion. Because if you have a bare, freshly plowed field and it rains on it, you know, you can watch the brown stream of mud run off in real time. And that's basically fertility going downstream at a pace that a farmer shouldn't want. And in the development of genetically modified Roundup-ready crops allowed farmers to basically spray an herbicide, glyphosate, on their fields as weed control. And that gave them a good way to go no-till because why did farmers no-till historically? It's great weed control. And you want your crops growing, not weeds. And so a lot of farmers viewed that as kind of the easy button in terms of weed control. Now, it had other downsides in terms of scrambling communities of soil life and introducing an herbicide into our food supply and those kind of things. But the, when you look at the recipe for cultivating beneficial life and think about it as minimizing physical and chemical disturbance, then the glyphosate-rich no-till doesn't cut it because that's just trading off chemical disturbance for physical disturbance. I think that the best way to think about it is really to strategize as a farmer about how, and, and this works for gardeners too, I think, how to minimize the chemical and physical disturbance of the soil. So it's not necessarily eliminating both. Like if you're going to grow carrots, how are you going to not disturb the soil and still get the carrot out of the ground? You've got to do some disturbance. But that doesn't mean you have to plow the seedbed to prepare it and plow it afterwards and continually disrupt the soil life. It means you really stick with the minimizing end of things. And so that's essentially where that comes through. It's essentially trying to minimize the disruption so you can maximize the ecological benefit of the communities that are there. I'm so glad you mentioned the gardener because I did wonder if there were some takeaways here. I mean, you mentioned all of these sort of large scale applicable methods like cover crops and rotation and and not disturbing the soil as much as possible without tilling. Yeah. Are, are there some other things that a gardener can think about in terms of these large scale ideas and bring those back to the scale of your ornamental vegetable small garden space? Absolutely. Everything that you know, we talk about in the book that farmers are doing to improve and maintain soil health. A gardener can absolutely do as well. I don't know what it is about our human brains and our monkey digits and stuff like that, but we just want to always dig in the soil. I think part of it is just this kind of innate curiosity, like what's down there anyway? And even though we can't see most of it, for some reason, we think if we keep, as a gardener anyway, you know, we keep digging, we'll, we'll see different things. You know, in an ornamental garden, you need to get the plant in the ground. And especially if you're dealing with like, you know, a 5, 10 or 20 gallon potted plant, it involves some digging, right? So that's where 
use a shovel to get the plant in the ground. But after that, you need not rely on the shovel so much because all of these same things that Dave was talking about that, you know, farmers who routinely till, they're slicing up fungi, they're smashing bacteria, they're dicing up all kinds of soil life. And these are some of the tiniest creatures on earth. And so it really behooves us to think about their size and their vulnerability to harm and death through our practices. I like to think about an ornamental garden because I see the different species and, you know, a tree versus a perennial and all of that. And what goes on in my mind is, wow, what kind of exudates are flowing out of that plant? And so that's where you get your diversity, right? You get all of these different kinds of plants. And then ground covers are yet another thing. And either you've got ground covers down or you've got mulch mixes down that are pretty thick. We want stuff that can absorb and store and pass along moisture. So I want either ground covers or diverse mulches for your cover up. And then again, just I already kind of hit on the grow diversity thing. I'm sure every gardener can figure out a way to cram another plant into a space. I know that I can. That's really what we ought to be thinking about with our gardens. You say that phytochemicals are key to soil health and human health. I'm curious if you could explain what those are and what they do for humans. I like phytochemicals because to me this means, oh, that's right. These are the chemicals the botanical world produces, and they are supposed to be producing them. And they do this huge number of defensive and protective and communication things for plants, between plants, between plants and their microbiome. And the phytochemicals that then are a part of plant foods in the human diet, you know, beta carotene, this whole huge world of polyphenols, the wine people can't stop talking about resveratrol. The vegetable people can't stop talking about beta carotene, you know, on and on it goes. So there are tens of thousands of compounds that are phytochemicals, just the chemicals that plants are supposed to be producing. And to me, what's so interesting in part about them is that when they come into the human body, they also serve protective and defensive functions. So they go from being sort of an ecosystem service thing to becoming a human health thing. And we're obviously in many, many ways really different than plants. And yet these phytochemicals are interacting with our genes and with our cells in ways that really just to kind of simplify it down in ways that keep our cells and tissues functioning. So we don't succumb to pathogens. We don't succumb to oxidation and disordered inflammatory processes because they really are just absolutely vital to keeping our cells and tissues just functioning normally. I really would love to, if we have time to talk to you at least briefly about livestock, because you do spend a good amount of time in this book talking about cattle in particular and dairy cows. I just actually came back from an event that we held at Gabalon Ranch, which is a ranch that's in San Juan Batista, California, where they're doing quite a bit of research. There's a research project and it is a regenerative cattle ranching operation. And so I got to see in real life some of the long-term research that's been going on around this. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about this proposal that nutritional quality of milk and meat can be 
improved and that reducing the environmental footprint of animal agriculture can be done. And so how is it that we just need to be raising animals and feeding animals in order to really do this? Why it's so important what animals eat, and especially ruminants, is that these are not just any old herbivore. They really are specialized, and I'll return to the digestive system. Oh, I hope you do, because it's amazing. You hear about the four-chambered stomach, and that kind of drives me crazy, because it's like, no, 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 wait a minute. They have one stomach, and then they have these other parts. And the ruminant digestive system is, on the whole, it is really oriented toward the way that these animals obtain nutrition. And a huge part of that takes place in the very, very front end, a place called the rumen. And this is the heart of a cow's microbiome. It's really somewhat akin to say, you know, it's sort of this really dynamic, ever-changing compost heap situation that is going on in the very, very front end of this digestive tract. There's a whole world of microbes in a cow's rumen, and they're able to break down cellulose because the cow genome does not have the genes that break this stuff down. So the cow's getting a couple key things out of this whole sort of arrangement and its rumen. And one thing is, is that the microbes are turning the cellulose into energy And then cow biology takes that energy and it builds muscle tissue and it turns it into milk. And then the other thing that's really important about what we feed cows has to do with the fat balance. And so what we know about these highly specialized herbivores is they do best on a diet where plants are living as they get eaten and that there's a diversity of plants. And this in turn relates to phytochemical diversity and You want leafy and living because these leafy living plants are photosynthesizing and a big part of photosynthesis in plants has to do with omega-3 fats. This is a kind of fat that's really important for human health that's really plummeted in the human diet. And so when you're eating what's called colloquially a grass-fed, I don't really like that term because it just implies a monoculture of grass and that's not what we're really talking about. We want animals out in a pasture where there's a diversity of plants. These are herbivores. They know how to pick and choose plants. And if they're taking in too much of one kind of phytochemical that might have a bit of toxicity, they balance that out and they move away from that plant and they eat something else. All the while, they're pulling in omega-3s that transfer through to meat and milk. So this is why diversity of plants, living plants, and the leafy part, because the leafy part is where photosynthesis is occurring. So you're getting all of these fats that come into the meat as well as the milk. This is such a huge important point for human health because of how we have just really scuttled the omega-6 to the omega-3 balance in our meat and in our dairy. The other thing is there's another kind of fat in ruminants, in cows in particular, it's called conjugated linoleic acid. And Basically, how do these animals need to be raised? They need to be raised outside living plants and a diversity of plants. And that's why everything that happens in a feedlot is pretty wretched for a ruminant. They're eating seeds instead of leafy living things. Yeah, and the reason that that really matters is that seeds are very rich in omega-6 fats. And those omega-3 and omega-6 fats have very different effects in the human body that relate very much to how our immune system works and how inflammation is both initiated and quelled. And you want 
a balance, as much of a balance as you can get between the two. So if you're eating a diet that is rich in things whose diet was rich in omega-6s rather than omega-3s, then your body's getting an overdose of omega-6s relative to omega-3s as well. And that doesn't help you quell inflammation. Yeah. And I think just one last thing here is about, well, how does healthy soil relate? Because it's it's easy to see how healthy soil relates to crop health, right? Stuff is moving directly out of soil into the plant body. But healthy soil in the animal context, this is why you want healthy soil. This is how you're going to get a diversity of plants, high enough levels of organic matter that you're getting sufficient plant growth, and you're getting the microbial sort of modulation and the microbial action that you also need to make all of these nutrients available. And in the cases where microbes are kind of semi-processing some of these things, you want that as well. And so part of the subtitle of the book, How to Heal Our Land and Reclaim Our Health, this is where ruminants can play, I think, a really significant role, provided that you have a person who is not just, you know, looking for yield on the hoof, but we're looking for maintaining and in many cases, improving the functions of the land where those ruminants are grazing. So that's, that's the heal our land part. And if we can heal the land, you know, we can reclaim our health. The key message of What's Your Food Aid is really that if we look at Questions about you know, the environmental impact of agriculture or the human health impacts of agriculture. We really should be looking at what it is our food ate as sort of the sources of that. And that, you know, tracing that all the way back to the soil. And if you can think of a plant as having a diet in terms of the, what it gets from the soil, that works. And if you think of a soil as having a diet as the way farmers on a farm treat their soil, you can think of you know the soil having a diet. You know, maybe stretching the definition of the word diet a little bit, but the concept kind of works. And if you think about the connections between each of them, and it's what we try and do in the book is sort of walk through the science and the history behind it of how those connections actually work and why it really makes sense to be when we're arguing about agriculture today or you're thinking about what to eat today. You know, it's not just about what you eat. It's not just about what we're growing. It's also about how we're doing it. What are food aid? I wasn't so surprised, honestly, to hear some of David and Anne's advice for the gardener. I think if you grow vegetables in an annual way in some of your garden beds, you're already probably thinking about crop rotation. You're thinking about cover crops and not disturbing the soil so much. But I have to say, I have a really new perspective on the soil biology itself and just what is under there. Yeah, the effect of actually digging and how that interacts with the hyphae and the soil microbes. Any chance that we get to have some insight into what's happening underneath the top layer of soil is fascinating to me. I'm always surprised by what I don't know about soil. I don't think I'll see you making a hole in my garden in the same way again. Oh, me neither. You always hear people talking about how, oh, we know more about space than we know about the ocean, right? And it's like, you're standing on soil and you don't even know what's going on like an inch under it. <laughs> exactly. I really like that they made the case that reducing the environmental footprint of animal agriculture can be done and in fact would have this huge benefit to human health as well. Also, what's interesting is that 
even though we are a long way from universally adopting a lot of these practices around raising animals and feeding animals in ways that support the healthiest soil and the healthiest people, we're getting at least a pretty good idea of what that would look like and what that could look like. So Adrian, we often have meals that are farm to table or farm to fork, but I want to just wish you a great Thanksgiving meal that is a soil microbes to fork. (laughs) (laughs) Enjoy eating what your food ate. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks everyone for listening today. If you liked Garden Futurist, please share it on your favorite social media platform or follow us on Spotify. Find us at pacifichorticulture.org. The free Pacific Horticulture newsletter is a great way to stay connected with Garden Futurist. You'll find articles, programs, and events all about resilient gardening in the Pacific region. Each month, we'll share insights into the interesting conversations we're having about things that matter to you. With an average of only two emails per month, we never spam you. Sign up for our free newsletter today at pacifichorticulture.org.